0: marketers have to be very conscious of, again, as we are dealing in a world of walled gardens, the triopoly of Facebook, Google, and Amazon. And they decide how many yards for a first down and how many points you score when you score a touchdown, right? So I think, yes, we can look at Facebook's benchmarks that they give per industry, that if you're an auto, you're going to get a 2.5 if you use their ad unit. Um, But I think brands need to, of course, be on those platforms, but go for their own goals. So if it is about brand building, you can still hack this algorithm. You can still get in front of people, but it doesn't have to be performative. It can be brand building. It can be about bringing awareness. And I think that's where the creative message and the power of creative can still really resonate with a prospective consumer. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito.
1: Okay, everyone, we have a doozy of an episode today. I had the chance to sit down with Matt Maher, the founder of M7 Innovations, to talk all things social commerce. First, we talked about the broader trend of contextual commerce, contextual marketing, um, since we have so many devices attached to us, so many devices and operating systems in our homes that are gathering all this great data about us. And then it kind of evolved. We talked a lot about the social algorithm, ways to beat the algorithm, and if doing so is ethical, and if it inhibits us from focusing on the core values of our brands the the content and authentic, authenticity and community that our brands are trying to create so i know social media is an ever evolving space a lot to learn a lot to consider in your social strategies and matt frankly digs into it all i hope you enjoy this conversation because i sure did I Matt, it is so good to have you on the show. Really excited to catch up and talk shop a little bit with you. Thanks for taking the time.
0: Alicia, pleasure to be here. Excited to chat.
1: So obviously we've spoken before, but everyone listening may not know about you or the work you do. So let's start with the basics. You're the founder of M7 Innovations. So what is M7 Innovations and what inspired you to start the business? I always love hearing founder stories like that.
0: Of course. So yes, M7, I like to think of us as a kind of creative innovation firm. So we specialize in technology. So voice technology, augmented and virtual reality, the internet of things, and certain subsets of artificial intelligence, mostly intelligent agents and chatbots. So we specialize in those technologies and where they live in the world. So that's in social, that's in gaming, that's in kind of all the media platforms. And the three main offerings that we have first is thought leadership. It's distilling down these very advanced technologies to kind of CMOs at brands to understand where they could live within these technologies, not only what they do today, but what they'll do tomorrow. Because what I mentioned with voice and AR and VR, and we'll talk about is they're growing rapidly, not just in user adoption, but in the technologies themselves. Um, The second thing we do is idea generation. So that's actually taste, touch, and feeling what your brand could look like if it made an Alexa skill or in AR lens or in the virtual reality world. And the third part is creative execution. So if you actually want to bring that idea to market, we also do that, right? We'll bring the partners together. We'll be that connective fiber. So our clients use us for all three of those. Some use us for one or two, but that's kind of our core offering. And we have a couple of great brands we work with through many verticals and, you know, the fast casual space, we have Panera and retail, we work with Bole and luxury and fashion, there's Chanel, and even enterprise with Suffolk Construction. So it's a fun, fascinating company to have founded. And I really did it because when I think of voice and AR and VR, these aren't shiny objects anymore. They are immersive new mediums that we're going to be talking about a lot this decade. And there was just a white space to play there.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like with AR in particular, it was something that I feel like I even started reading about and, and reporting on up to like five years ago, but the use cases weren't quite there. Everyone was like, oh, is this a bunch of hype? But now we're really seeing some actual impactful applications of it. So, I mean, I have a feeling where you're going to go with this next question I had for you around, you know, the trends that are happening now. And and most of all, what you're most excited about, because I feel like now we're seeing so much innovation, accelerated innovation, because some brands have had to adapt quickly. They've had to pivot their businesses. But Are there any tech trends that you're especially excited about, I guess, from an experience standpoint, and then maybe even from a commerce standpoint
0: as well? Sure. Yeah, there's two. So, yes augmented reality, I think, is one. So I like to say it's moved from fun to functional. I mean, what AR used to be, you're right. I mean, years ago, it was, you know, the dancing hot dog in Snapchat, which is really cute and really fun. Uh, But it's actually becoming a marketing tool now. So I think the one trend I'm really keen on is this merging of the physical and digital world. So especially in retail, I think we're going to get to a point where every physical object in the real world should have a digital layer to it. So examples, right? Whether it's just the Sprite Zero can that has a QR code on it that can give you more ingredients, whether it's a movie poster you see that if you hold your phone up, it'll give you an exclusive trailer, or an NBA jersey at retail where it has an NFC tag and you tap it and gets you courtside virtual seats. So that's a trend we're starting to see that there should be a digital layer on physical objects. Especially in retail, there's a data layer to it. It's just a more of a story you can tell. The second piece would be voice. I think voice is a trend I've been following very closely. It's what you and I have talked about before. I mean, the numbers are just are bonkers, right? There's we're hundreds of millions of vocal assistants in the Alexas and Google assistants in the world. Hearables are exploding. It's going to be a $93 billion business by 2026. And it's a hands-free UI. I mean, if you think back to Gen X, they grew up with desktops, right? There's clicking, there's dragging. You have to learn how to do those functions. Even millennials, right? Clicking, swiping, even if they grow up with mobile, you learn that. If you can speak you've mastered the UI of voice. So I think we'll see voice continue to grow. So AR and voice, I'm very bullish on this decade.
1: Yeah, I remember we had a fascinating conversation around voice commerce a few months back and how behaviors have evolved, the different use cases. And to your point around, is this fun or is this functional? What what really caught my attention about your perspectives and your insights on this particular trend is that you really emphasized that context and value are really crucial. Like, what is the consumer trying to accomplish? How does this device or experience fit in the context of their everyday lives or this certain moment in their life? And that's how retailers need to be thinking about voice and and designing the ideal experience around it. So I guess this kind of ladders up to a much bigger question I have for you around innovation and tech investment, because I know there have been a lot of conversations around like, oh, like what's cool and new and immersive. But then on the other side of the spectrum, it's okay, well, what's practical and valuable for our customers? What's innovative or a new spin on something, but still answers a need or a pain point. Are you seeing, I guess, a shift in brand and retailer priorities, like from an innovation perspective? Like, are we looking towards more, practical use cases that more align with like the context of the consumer's lives, especially since we're basically largely at home right now?
0: Yes, I think we're getting there. I think the issue with a lot of brands and a lot of retailers is they, they look at the umbrella of voice or augmented reality, and you can really boil the ocean with all the things you could do, right? Alexa can handle... Tens of millions of intents, but you don't need tens and millions of intents when I walk into a Target and I just need to know where the paper towels are, right? So I think the the issue is retailers and brands, they need to get more narrow on what they need the technology to do. It's a bottoms-up approach. And I think, and maybe it's an unpopular opinion, I don't think retailers have been great with this with voice i think there's an ecosystem problem it's walmart has to partner with google because they don't want to partner with amazon so they leave 63% of the market share of vocal assistance untouched so which ecosystem do we go to with augmented reality i think you hit it on the head in the beginning right it was it's this fun shiny kind of thing but now all of a sudden it can be used for virtual try on and product trial has a whole actual use case. And it's very functional to be able to try things on, especially being at home and not being able to shop. So I think the issue is identifying how narrow you need to be with these technologies. And some retailers have done a great job. Some haven't. I mean, I flip it to you. I mean, you're so engrossed in this. Have you seen great executions of voice or AR at retail?
1: So voice, I honestly, I haven't seen a lot of great implementations of it. And that could be because I'm not as fully immersed. I mean, I'm just fully learning all of the different opportunities and capabilities. I would say that the biggest opportunity for voice is probably from a, I guess, almost like a combination of like content-driven, search-driven type experience, like help me get to something faster versus just skills. But I do think that there have been some fun use cases of like Alexa skills that are, I guess, brand adjacent, right? Like cooking skills and like, oh, maybe there's an opportunity for us to recommend products based on the recipes, things of that nature. So again, I I feel like there hasn't been as much movement as I would like to see at this point, just because I know my, I'm not going to say her name because she's going to turn on right now, but my personal assistant is so embedded into my life. Like, I just think there's there's a lot of untapped opportunity there. AR, I'm seeing a lot of exciting movement with, especially around beauty and cosmetics. I think they're really leading the charge in AR and hopefully we'll we'll see more in fashion. I think that's kind of the the big question mark, like, oh, like, can we create an AR experience where I'm virtually trying on something and it and it feels contextual and it feels accurate to what I ultimately purchase.
0: I would agree. I, I think what I've seen is that the transition from the great Alexa skill to transforming to in-store and what that actually means in retail, just it isn't there yet. And you're right, the cooking skills are there. Uh, the Tide skill is, is a great example, right? So for a Tide skill, it can tell you how to get chocolate out of your sneakers, red wine out of your couch, all these different things. And what they were able to do is use the data and the raw utterance data of what people were asking for to identify that a lot of people are asking how to get red wine out of sneakers, and we don't have a product for that. So it actually can inform the next product that they actually make. So there's these small use cases where it's extremely functional. But then when you walk into Soar and you want to actually find where the Tide pen is, it kind of gets lost. It gets broken at that point. And then the question is, who does it fall upon? Does it fall upon Target to have a kiosk and a voice kiosk that you can go up to and ask these things? Does it fall on Tide to also have a a Google and Alexa and something with Siri that no matter what, they cover all ecosystems. So when I walk in with my hearables, I can you know say, hey, Siri, where where's the Tide pen? And it can tell me. So I think that's the problem is we're we're missing the actual link between those two. But I agree, AR is I think the next frontier, and we can even double click onto that and and where product trial can actually go in the future.
1: Yeah, I love that tied use case because, like you said, it's not directly tied to the product, but you're kind of bringing the brand into the conversation, which I'm, I'm hearing a lot about context now, like contextual commerce, contextual marketing. I feel like that's almost a level up or I guess technically a level deeper than like traditional like personalization. And I feel like personalization has been such a hot topic. And then also there are so many different channels that help create this context around the consumer? So like you said, Tide was using consumer insight to determine, like, what are their questions? What do they really want and need from a content perspective and kind of use that to, to build the experience? But now we're also seeing social commerce. I mean, AR, I could imagine when you're using that technology, there are, there's so much data to come out of that. So, I mean, how does this all kind of come together to create a toolbox or or a big recipe of customer data for, I guess, for lack of a better term to to help create this context. And I mean, are there any more significant opportunities than others like to help retailers get that better context in the consumer so they can better engage with them?
0: There are. There are. And I think the the table stakes that we have to set the table with is this. It's that the hardest thing now is to measure these new technologies against old benchmarks. And what I mean by that is you don't want to measure voice or voice search against traditional text search, right? Or you don't want to measure an augmented reality ad against like your standard display ad because these mediums are inherently different by nature. So I use an example for augmented reality, something we did with Bolé, And this, again, was an innovation because at its core, what is innovation? It's finding a simple solution to a seemingly complex problem, oftentimes using a technology. And their problem was COVID hit, and not only were stores shut down, but even when they started to slowly open back up, nobody wants to put on a communal pair of sunglasses just because there's a fear now of who else put them on and are they clean. And so we leaned into augmented reality to say, okay, we know that we can try these on. We know there's the technology that a face lens, we can actually try these on, but their power, the context of what makes belief so special is how innovative their lenses actually are. So seeing out through the lenses is what sells them. And they had this wild statistic that when in-store with an assisted salesman walking someone through, and when they're actually trying them on, this is pre-COVID, I think it was a 62% chance that the user would, uh, the consumer would buy a pair of Vole sunglasses. That went to 0% when stores shut down. So we said, how do we use AR to recreate that experience for everyone? So we did, okay, of course we can do try-on, that's table stakes in a way. But what if we flipped the camera, because World Lens is the second camera on everyone's smartphone, and we superimpose the glasses onto your phone so your camera becomes the Bole lens. And now you can look at the filters, light adaptive. You can scroll up and down to see what happens when it gets brighter. You can see anti-fog, how it doesn't fog up. And it just became extremely functional. And it's a long-winded way to say the data that came back showed that you know the dwell time on the actual experience for the core target was around 14 to 15 seconds, which is a pretty long time when you think of an AR lens or any ad unit that you'd mess around with. Um, so that's a different type of benchmark. So we put are into dwell time. We want to know how long people spend in the actual experience. I mean, I think that's just an example I use of you don't want to measure it against what a display ad was or what just a website experience, how long they scrolled. It's kind of its own and it was kind of a use case that worked out.
1: Yeah, that makes sense because that time in the experience shows that they're immersed, they're spending time with it. And the more time you spend, I mean, I guess this is, this is an assumption just from my marketing background. The more time someone spends with something, the, I guess, more qualified there are, right? Like, if they're spending time with an AR lens or trying something on, they're, they're maybe testing different styles, the likelihood of them ultimately be making a purchase is greater. So they may be ideal targets that if they don't purchase, like you may want to retarget those people or send a more personalized offer. Like there could be a longer term engagement opportunity as well, I could imagine.
0: You just cracked our media plan right yeah. there, Alicia. You, <laughs> you know, you nailed it. You nailed it because it, once we know that they've spent time with the experience and they're potentially a prospect, then of course you can use the power of media in context in other parts of the media world to then retarget them, sure.
1: Okay, so my follow-up question for you then is, can you break down the integration, the current integration, or the possible integration of AR and social commerce? Because I know, obviously, like Snap has filters. They did that fun like Gucci try-on shoe, but then everyone's like, who's actually going to click through and buy a pair of Gucci shoes after trying them on on Snapchat? We're, we're seeing those use cases more and more. But is there more opportunity for those two worlds to come together a little bit better? Like what's kind of stopping it from reaching
0: the next level? So I think it's two converging trends that are happening. Yes, augmented reality adoption is continuing to increase and people are finding it more than just the fun face lenses. There is product trial. Then to your other point, yes, social commerce is starting to grow exponentially and we're starting to see all these platforms have options to actually check out. So to focus on that for a second, first I have to have a call out to Shopify because I think what people don't realize is is Shopify is powering e-commerce on the Facebook family of apps which is Touching 2.26 billion people every day. It powers Snapchat, it powers TikTok, it powers Pinterest. So that's almost a third trend that there's a white label technology that makes this e commerce extremely frictionless and lets you never stop the scroll and purchase and still go on on your social adventure. So that's one piece. So you look at the trend of social commerce is growing. We look at augmented reality becoming more functional. And I think that there will be a tipping point where. I use Belay as the example. The dwell time was longer because people were trying out all the functions. It wasn't the three-second dancing hot dog that did its little animation and then just started looping the animation again. So I think for retailers and brands, if they started thinking of more robust experiences you can create within augmented reality, then it can be extremely functional. And then at that point, you can sell on the actual platforms. I think that's the most amazing thing, the ability to try on uh, lipstick, try on a hat, try on anything, and then be able to purchase it, say, in Instagram, check out, no guest checkout. It has all your credentials. You've bought it, it's shipped to the address it has on file, paid with Apple Pay, and then boom, you're still scrolling. I mean, we're talking no friction. And that's what I think is really exciting why I think so many dollars will start to move towards social commerce.
1: Yeah. It's interesting to finally see it reach its full potential because I remember when Facebook had its like little shopping cart widget and I was like... <gasps> oh my gosh, groundbreaking. And then it kind of like coming, went nowhere. <laughs> and that was like, what, like a decade ago, I want to say. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to explode. And I think it was maybe like one or two retailers didn't kind of fell off the map. Granted, Facebook has kind of evolved with its marketplaces model. Um, that's more peer-to-peer. And then we're seeing some, of course, fantastic movement in Instagram and hopefully TikTok, which we'll get into a little bit later. But want to ask you, I mean, looking at these different offerings, the different advertising models, the commerce opportunities across these different social networks. I mean, do you think one has the most potential for brands and retailers? Or do you think that the props mainly go to like the Shopify's of the world that are finding ways to connect all of them together and, and creating that one seamless experience?
0: I believe that there is one platform that will stand out above the rest. And it's not because it's the platform and it's not because of the technology. Because as we said, Shopify is powering everything. And the reason I will tell you this platform and why I think it is the most powerful is because of the behaviors. So I just want to zoom out for a second. I love the example you gave of Gucci selling on Snapchat. Very cool Very splashy, but you're right. No one went to Snapchat to buy Gucci. You don't go to Snapchat to shop for Gucci. You go to Snapchat as a comms platform to snap with your friends, to have these different experiences. So every social network has a different inherent behavior that you act when you're there. You know, TikTok is very performative, Facebook is really leaning towards community, Instagram is very aspirational. So I believe Instagram is the best suited for social commerce, mostly because. Again, everything is aspirational Instagram. Your frenemies are going on all these trips and you hate them for it, but you wish you were there. You look at products, you look at the ads, which are so smart, they're so contextual that it feels like it's one of your friends that could post it. So pair that with their checkout product, which is the e-commerce product for Instagram. And you don't really ever have to stop the scroll. And I will be honest, I have fallen victim to this. I have three MVMT watches I bought off Instagram that I definitely didn't need. I bought a chirp wheel for my back, which wasn't hurting, but it just looked so good that I needed it. So I really think Instagram is best suited to probably take the lead when it comes to actual sales. And not to put you on the spot, but have you ever purchased something on Instagram or am I the only crazy one? I'm
1: trying to remember. It's it's crazy because, yes, I've definitely done it through their ads. I will say their ads are super effective, I think maybe I've had like one. or I think the Glossier sale this past weekend, I was just like every time I saw an ad, I was like, <laughs> wait, I think I needed something else because it's only once a year. But I think of all of the different platforms, Instagram is like the only one I've ever taken some sort of action on. So I agree. I think it's this combination of a few different factors that makes Instagram so effective. It's The one-click capabilities, like you said, it's so much easier than I know there are some tools that have like the link in bios and then you click the link. and then you go to the thing. It's like too many steps. It's too much for me. But then it's also the content that goes into it, right? Like not just for the ads and the video, but also like that authentic, rich content that really, I don't think any other platform other than Instagram is really known and relied on for so I mean I guess I'm going to go back to you because you're the expert on like the advertising side I feel like I can always learn more about this so I think all three of these things are important right the purchasing the content the one click but then it's also the algorithm right that comes into play so I guess my drill down question for you is how does that influence or impact all of the other great stuff about Instagram that makes it so effective
0: So, and I'm glad we're talking algorithms now because this is where it gets really interesting because what we're going to see in the next year to to two to possibly three years is a complete change of how we consume content. And I'm going to go straight to TikTok because right now TikTok is the leader in terms of, the best algorithm. And what I mean by best algorithm is something I call like calibration velocity. It can calibrate what you want to see extremely fast and you don't even need to give it much information. So TikTok is very far in the lead right now, but an unbelievably curated algorithm that just feeds you a fire hose of personalized content will be table stakes across everything, Facebook, Instagram. I mean, they're all working on that right now. And what that does is it, it just gives you almost to the point of you think it's what you want but they're actually feeding you what you think you want. I mean, you start to lose discovery and we can go deeper into this, but what the algorithm really does is it it needs to keep you on the platform as, as long as possible. And and advertising is part of the it's like the the root of all all of this evil, right? They, the longer you can stay on the platform, the more ad dollars it's why, you know, Facebook of the revenue is advertising and it's $71 billion a year. So these algorithms really are just made to put the best content in front of you. And if there's one thing I I start to tell marketers and tell big brands now, a definitive statement is you have to stop thinking outside the box and start thinking inside the code. How can you start to get into these algorithms that are actively feeding this personalized content to you?
1: Interesting. Okay, this is going to get a little juicy. So you talked about the algorithm, how really the goal for these platforms is to get us to spend as much time as possible to feed us information that makes us want to keep digging or keep scrolling, keep consuming. But then you brought up an interesting point around how discovery doesn't quite work anymore. It doesn't quite exist. So does that mean we're essentially in like a marketing or advertising echo chamber and... What does that mean from an algorithmic standpoint? Like you said, like people need to understand and design for the code. What exactly does that mean and how do you even do that? Because I'm looking at this from a creative person, a marketer, a content person. So I'm definitely more artistically minded versus like the science and the code behind it. So I'd love for you to break that down a little bit further.
0: Sure. And I mean, this is in the data. This isn't just like my speculation that the algorithms are so powerful. I mean, New York Times reporter Kevin Roos, he did a great expose on, on YouTube, and he found this stat that 70%, 70% of all traffic on YouTube comes from the recommendation algorithm. That means only 30% of people who actually watch anything on YouTube actually search out or click something on a page. Everything else is fed to them. And let's go back to TikTok again. That starts with, if you open TikTok, and I use myself as an example on this. When I, when I first went on the TikTok. I tried to give them no information. I didn't, all they knew is that I was a a white male in my thirties, didn't follow anybody. And what was I fed at the beginning? I was given very viral dance trends, like workout bro videos, and then like beautiful people dancing, both women and men. They didn't know which way, they didn't know which way I was going. And so quickly, if you look at my feed now, like weeks later, it was all entrepreneurial inspirational videos. It was family skits, it was investment tips. And I found out like I, I normally don't look for investment tips on TikTok, but I, I loved the content. And they just have all these signals that they picked up on me that they were feeding me this content that I just kept scrolling on. So I think what you need to do as a marketer when I say you know stop thinking outside the box and start thinking inside the code is you look at these platforms and and each algorithm is slightly different and TikTok you don't really have friends right whereas Instagram it's your friends Facebook it's your friends so you have to look at what the algorithms are feeding and then how can you create content there's two ways to do it you can go organic you can start to try to create content and and mirror what some of these top influencers are doing or what these trends are you could be seen as not authentic so you have to be very careful But I mean, there are 30 videos right now. You go on YouTube on how to hack the TikTok algorithm. It's about the duration of the video. It's about the comments. It's the likes. It's how many repeats, how many loops. So you can go the organic way or you can lean into the business side of things, the advertising and TikTok is exploding. TikTok for business has six different ad units now. So there's these two avenues that if you look at each platform you can kind of cater to that platform and then just realize that Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, they're all building their algorithms to do the same exact thing. So you have to be crafty, but in that world, that's kind of where we'll move to.
1: All right. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Again, the creative person (laughs) um, standing on her soapbox. So if if we're looking at social and social content through the lens of how can I get into the algorithm? How can I hack the algorithm, whatever you want to call it? Do you think that we're kind of getting into a slippery slope where we're just trying to hit the KPIs? We're just trying to game the system in order to hit those goals and say like, oh, we got into the the feed or we maximized our presence that we're focusing more on the science of it all and not so much the art, meaning we're no longer just emphasizing our brand, our brand values, you know, what sets us apart. And now we're just going to be kind of blending into each other.
0: I know it's, it's like killer to talk about because I think we both have like such a love for creative. And I, I think honestly that creative will still live hacking that algorithm doesn't have to be the extremely performative piece of media that gets someone to bottom of the funnel, just buy something. It can be very brand building. I mean, I came decade in the ad world and it was shifting to just performance media and it was just bottom of the barrel crappy stuff, right? That was just last touch attribution and it didn't build a brand. And what that eventually moves to is people not caring if it's Uber or Lyft, they just need a car. So. I think marketers have to be very conscious of, again, as we are dealing in a world of walled gardens, the triopoly of Facebook, Google, and Amazon. And they decide how many yards for a first down and how many points you score when you score a touchdown, right? So I think, yes, we can look at Facebook's benchmarks that they give per industry, that if you're an auto, you're going to get a 2.5 if you use their ad unit. Um, But I think brands need to, of course, be on those platforms, but go for their own goals. So if it is about brand building, you can still hack this algorithm, you can still get in front of people, but it doesn't have to be performative. It can be brand building. It can be about bringing awareness. And I think that's where the creative message and the power of creative, which I think you and I care very much about, can still really resonate with a prospective consumer. Okay,
1: got it. So this isn't to say that, say I'm part of a marketing team, the social person's there, the e-commerce person's there. Hopefully, I mean, this may not be the case for all brands and retailers right now, but everyone's kind of sitting at the table And establishing their marketing goals, social media is a part of that. How does the goal setting process shake out in an ideal world? Is it a combination of reach-based metrics, like those KPIs, but also like brand building? Is it like prioritizing the reach? And then brand is just a part of it. I'm just trying to understand from through a strategic lens, like how executives should be thinking about social media and social commerce now because everything's so algorithmically driven.
0: Yeah, I I think first and foremost... Well, I was saying the numbers before at 2.26 billion a day on Facebook, a quarter billion on Snapchat. We're almost 3 billion people daily on social platforms. So you need to be there. I think the absence of being on social is a huge miss, unless, of course, you're like a restoration hardware who like that's their shtick is not being on on social. But the first thing is you need to be there. So the reality then becomes of what is your voice? Because brands have a voice now. They have a personality. And what is your voice on Snapchat versus Pinterest versus... Is TikTok. You don't need to be on all of these platforms as well. And I know that sounds counterintuitive to what I just said, but if you don't skew extremely young and you don't need to be on TikTok, then you can still put effort to maybe doing something there, but you might want to focus your attention on your Instagram because you're an aspirational band brand and that aligns perfectly. But I think the reality is today is the constituents on all on these platforms are extremely smart right? So I think a lot of these platforms are very self-regulating. So users not only will disregard your advertisement if it's not authentic, I mean, they could bury you. Reddit's the best example. I mean, if if you can advertise on Reddit, you can advertise anywhere because they sniff out poor advertising and they just bury brands. So I think... The key is you just really have to know what your voice and what your space is. We're fighting for attention every second. So if you don't really have something interesting to say, then don't say it at all. And then this, I guess, might be a provocative statement, but a lot of the time, and maybe it's why I'm not in advertising anymore, but most of the time, advertising just like ruins everything, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're at, it's like you're all at a party, you're having a good time, it's like you're all vibing, and then like, through the door walks this like Janko wearing sideways cap dude that's like hey kids let's kick it and you're like oh damn it advertising's (laughs) here like I'd like pay money I'll pay money to go in a different room if I don't have to see them so I think if you think in that mindset like don't be that dude then you can try to start to think of like what actually can add value if I have their attention what can add value to this consumer I think if you start at that baseline you can build from the bottom up to a kind of successful campaign
1: right and having that understanding of your customer I guess first Qualifying or determining if that audience is a fit for you, right? And then you can kind of go down the strategic rabbit hole of like finding the right messaging and will this messaging resonate and still get us in the conversation, quote unquote, even though it seems like more of a uh, a series of megaphones, But then it kind of allows you to kind of, I guess, consider both sides, right? Like, how can I get seen and be a part of this conversation? And but then how can I get people to stop and be like, oh, I actually really like this one rather than just do the mindless scroll?
0: And to your other point, yes. And your other point about being strategic, you don't have to sell either. I, th- I think that's the other thing. Just because you can sell on every platform doesn't mean you have to. You have to have serious conversations of which data am I going to sacrifice? If I'm going to sell on Instagram, is the juice worth the squeeze if I do sell there? Or do I want to use all my media and advertising to bring back to my owned and operated platforms and website? So I think it's it's really complex situation because the opportunity is there. The technology is there. We've talked about AR. The purchasing power is there. You can basically sell on any platform, but it's what makes the most sense for your brand and what you're trying to do in the long run.
1: Yeah, no, this is great, man. And I feel like this conversation, getting people to spend as much time in the app as possible, that addiction to consuming content, the scrolling, beating the algorithm. I mean, I, I just watched The Social Dilemma, so this is very top of mind right now. I'm like, whoa, I feel like I'm living the movie, which I know is very much the point. Granted, I don't think I have. Pete from Mad Men like manipulating me every day, but it's it's there, right? It's there behind the scenes. And even though we're talking marketing and customer engagement and there's this light and airy feel to it and, yay, this is so exciting, I, I think the daunting underpinning of this is that, you know, we're a part of something that is addictive and there are a lot of conversations around are these models ethical? Is Are these positive spaces for us as humans. So I feel like that conversation around ethical tech and how is it impacting marketing and advertising and us as executives is one worth having. But so not to get all deep on you right now at the end of our conversation no, let's get deep, but let's get deep. but I would love your take on this debate that's happening now and how it's maybe impacting the conversations that you're having and how you're maybe guiding brands and retailers right now like is it as present as you think it should be do you think it'll become more present i mean i would love your take on that
0: yeah i mean we're doomed so let's start there we're yeah. just as, as the human <laughs> race we're doomed and now this is smart we're actually this we would hack an algorithm you and i Alicia, because what we're doing is the juiciest contents right at the end and if you do that then it keeps people listening the whole time let's dive into this Just look at the numbers. Okay. So in 2009, the average American spent 19 minutes on their smartphone. In 2019, it's three hours and 47 minutes. And we're looking like we're going to crest over four hours. China is seven hours and two minutes a day. So those are wild numbers and that's consistent growth. Uh, And those numbers come from eMarketer. So that number is not stopping. It'll start to plateau because there's only so many hours in a day. But the Cat is Out of the Bag. I mean, the, and The Social Dilemma, a fantastic film. I think it really just made people aware. I think the most shocking thing is that many people who built these platforms wouldn't dare let their kids uh, on them, which just kind of shows how dangerous they can be. So I care very much about this just from a, an ethical standpoint as well of, you know, how do we stop this? I said advertising is the root of all evil, at least when it comes to this world, because the idea is. These platforms are built to keep you on them as long as possible. And I think the tricky thing is, and I, not to get political for a second, but there's so much talk about antitrust and regulation, and a lot of it is just break up big tech, which doesn't make any sense. I think moving forward, how do we kind of get to a point where we're safer for our kids, for everyone? Um, I think we have to start to go after these dark patterns. And what dark patterns are are basically things in a user interface to manipulate someone to stay longer, to do an action, right? So I think there is hope. In 2003, there was the Can Spam Act, which basically, if you look at any email you get that's an email blast, there's an unsubscribe button at the bottom of it. And if there's not, and there's not an address, and there's not a way for you to get out of it, that company's liable for up to $48,000 per email. So I think the next step is we need to start going after some of these like really bad behaviors that these social platforms and tech giants have done. Robinhood has gamified trading. And sadly, there's a 20-year-old who committed suicide because he was doing an options poll and had no idea that he wasn't actually in debt, but he thought he was in $700,000 in debt. And Uber has constantly gamified their drivers to just keep driving, keep staying on the road. So I think it's a very serious problem. And I mean, we're not going down. We're never going to go down from three hours and 47 minutes. We're only going to crest up, right? So we just need to be smarter about what we do. And when I do take that with brands to say, like, we do want to be ethical, we want. We don't We need to just take someone's attention just to take it. So it goes back to value. What value are you adding for that person? What are you giving them? Because we're in a world now where we no longer advert someone's attention. We want to add value to it. So it is a scary world, but I am always to mystic. Yeah,
1: no, there's some great stuff there. I guess I had a follow-up question that kind of popped into my head. So we're talking about curating or or pushing content and messaging brands to users to keep them in the site, gamifying this experience enough so it keeps them intrigued and, and immersed. On the other end of the spectrum, I'm hearing a lot about accounts being shadow banned, content being hidden, either because the algorithm deems it quote unquote not favorable or because there's some shady stuff going on the social media side. Do you have a take on that? Like, is that really a Thing? Is that something that brands need to be wary of, or or try to have a plan for addressing? It's still kind of fuzzy to me, so would love for you to kind of enlighten me if you can.
0: Yeah, I mean, the reality is, I said those numbers, three billion, there's no amount of humans, the problem is there's no amount of humans that can moderate all this content or moderate everything that's out there. At the same time, contrary to what people believe, AI is extremely fallible and can never be a single solution to moderate anything. It's why you see uh, Google adding thousands of moderators, Facebook, tens of thousands, ones that have to be treated for PTSD for seeing some of the content they do. So it's this very tricky space because you need an artificial intelligence to pull out the signals and just ingest the mass amount of content, but then you need a real human who understands context and nuance to know if it's good or bad or if it should actually be out in the world. So... uh, it's just, it's not fixed yet. It's, we're still in this weird world where it's just just so much you could actually do. And it's hard to self-regulate. I mean, a really, let's go back to a safe example. In the gaming world, Animal Crossing has been a massive game, right? And brands have been taking advantage of it and they're building little, you know, KFC built a world in Animal Crossing and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris built a little like political world you could go to. And like Nintendo came out and said like, no more, you can't do this. Like they for months they've been able to do this but they're like we don't want advertising we don't want politics we don't want any of this so all these platforms kind of they're self regulating themselves but it usually happens too late right so it's it gets to this really tricky space of it's impossible to moderate everything so some brands try to do the land grab and get in there while they can and if you get 6 months of advertising for free and then it's pulled then better on you so i try to do is yeah let's find those spaces where we can but let's not do it in an unethical way and let's not do it in a way that is detrimental to the user's experience
1: yeah i love that because i know at the end of the day there's always going to be debates of Oh, like the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, the Jack Dorseys of the world, they changed the way we communicate. They brought us closer to each other. But with that, that also leads to more tension, more echo chambers, us kind of being in our own little worlds where we're only being pushed the content that they know is going to get us to stay there longer. So it's like, it's definitely a tug of war. And I know, you know, there's always going to be people that are going to say, well, If you're going to change the world to an extent that they have, things get off path or, you know, they may not always be able to do the 100% ethical or perfect thing. So it's just a very fascinating, I guess, time for us to be having conversations around marketing and advertising because we want to maximize reach and impact. We want to resonate with our audience. But I also don't want to be creepy. I also don't want to make false promises or spread misinformation. So there are a lot of factors at play right now, I feel like,
0: yeah. I don't think Mark Zuckerberg planned to be the monster he is today, but it just it's <laughs> it, it just kind of happened that way, right? That was the Silicon Valley world of blitzscaling and just growing and growing and growing and going unchecked for a decade. So, yeah, we're in a tricky spot now. but I, I do think there's hope. I point to Brian Chesky, one of the co-founders of Airbnb. He's a fantastic CEO. The way he leads is extremely ethical. He gives equity to all his power users, the owners. They're going to IPO. And when COVID came, he was in investing. He had to lay off 25% of his workforce, but gave them unbelievable severance. So I think there is still hope for founders to not always go the route of the Dorsey or the Zuckerberg or the Travis Kalvinick. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot farther and fewer between. And it's going to be very hard to build a company like a Facebook or an Amazon if you started just today. It's going to take some time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're running out our conversation, Matt. And and again, thank you so much for taking the time. I want to close out with a more, I guess, tactical or best practice oriented question than a prediction oriented one. So first, let's get into some nitty gritty takeaways, best practices. We talked a lot about a lot today, like you said. So any closing recommendations for the brand and retail executives listening right now that need to continue to balance the two sides of the coin, right? Get in front of the audience, resonate, drive action, but then also find ways to innovate and be thoughtful and intentional in the way you go about doing that. Are there any like core starting points or, or key questions they should be asking to get themselves on the right path?
0: Yes, I'd say first and foremost, and this is the first part of what M7 offers or what I try to do is you just, you have to understand the technology. You need to deeply understand the technologies. You have to understand the platforms and you have to understand the opportunities that exist within them. Not just today, but the roadmap of where they're going to be in a year, two years, and three years. Because a lot of the times you plan for just today and by the time you go to market to launch, there's 17 new features and new things you could have done. So I think you need to arm yourself, your brand, you need to arm yourself with it like a Navy SEAL-like team That's half recon that just researches and understands and then half executors who can go on the mission and actually put it out to market. And the example, to go back to Belay for a second, we knew Tryon existed, but Tryout never existed. No one tried to superimpose lenses on the outward facing camera, but we knew the technology could do that. So we tried to push and we said, let's try it out. And we worked with QReal, a fantastic partner, and we're in the lab trying to make it actually work because we haven't tried it before. But we only did that because we knew we wanted people to actually try out these glasses. So can we push this technology to actually do it? So if you deeply understand the technology, you're going to know not just where it is, but where it's going to be. At the same time, understand the platforms and you're going to be You're going to be well-versed to make the right decisions and the right bets when you do lean into those technologies and platforms.
1: Love that. And then our closing question, a prediction. We've been talking a lot about algorithms. We brought up TikTok a few times, Instagram, of course. Our uh, good friend, Scott Galloway, who I know you and I are both kind of obsessed with. It's a little weird, but we like him. Um, (laughs) It's
0: weirder for me. I think it's weirder for me to be obsessed.
1: (laughs) But he's been talking a lot about algorithmic commerce or a commerce. Do you think it's here to stay? Is this only the tip of the iceberg, so to speak?
0: I mean, I want to disagree with him just to start a dialogue, but, but no, I I have to agree with him on this one. The reality is, I mean, algorithms are never going to go away. Just think at its, at its basis, right? Like you're never going to stop giving people what they want to see. Because what happens then, if I stop feeding you exactly what you want, you're just not going to spend time on my platform anymore. And then you're just never going to come back and then I'm going to lose revenue. So algorithms are here. They're only getting stronger and better every single day. Uh, Same thing happens with algorithmic uh, commerce, right? So the products that are put in front of us are only going to get stronger. When I say discovery is dead, I mean, if you think of the last bastions of actual discovery, like a Pinterest, I mean, even Pinterest feeds are getting curated now, right? So it's actually hard to have an unfiltered pure discovery session anymore. I mean, all we can do is all run out to a home goods and just like soak it all in because that's the last place. So I think algorithms are all here. They're here to stay. And if you're a brand, it's about how do you get into those algorithms in a meaningful way, not in an adverting of attention way um, and provide value. So... For the next decade, I hope to talk to you again on this. Hopefully it's not as dark in in a year or so, but yes, (laughs) algorithms are here. We'll bring Scott on and we'll argue about it. Yeah,
1: there you go. We'll have to make that happen. That'll be an interesting conversation. But Matt, for now, this has been a insightful, I think very deep conversation, a lot for folks to take notes on, go back to, consider, especially as they try to figure out how the future of social commerce and social media kind of fits into their brand and what they're trying to do for consumers. So I feel like you blow my mind every time we talk. So you did not disappoint this time. And thank you again so much for uh, taking the time out to join me today.
0: Thank you, Alicia. It's a pleasure. Can't wait to talk to you again.
1: Awesome. And as always, to everyone out there, thank you for joining us. Hope you enjoy this conversation. If you have any follow-up questions for Matt, please shoot us a note on Twitter at our touch points. We'd love to make those connections, hopefully have some follow-up conversations, even debates around what this crazy world of social media is like now and what will it be like in the future. It's always changing. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. We're on your preferred podcast players. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever else, most likely. And If you subscribe, you get alerts when new fascinating conversations like this one are available. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.